let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good, and though the night is hard, we know we're not forsaken. We know you are near to us, and we know and we believe and we proclaim that you are risen today. So we praise you, Lord, would you speak to us now, would your power be displayed in our weakness, and help us to truly be able to respond to you in a way that glorifies and honors your name. In Jesus' name, amen. This is definitely not how I envisioned or hoped to be celebrating Easter. I love getting together with you all every Sunday, and but there's something special about Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that it's usually one of the highlights of my year. One of my pastor friends said that it's like we're celebrating Easter in exile. And while this crisis hasn't moved us out of our homeland, it certainly has moved us away from our normal everyday life and routines into a position of uncertainty and suffering and alienation and loneliness into a little taste of exile. And it's okay to lament that. As I've thought and prayed about this weekend in particular, I've made a tentative plan to celebrate Holy Week together later on this year, Lord willing. So part of Good Friday and Easter we've postponed to a to-be-determined time. However, I didn't want to postpone everything altogether, because if there was ever a time to focus on our Savior conquering death, it's now. And we need the gospel good news today. We need the mercy of the cross and the hope of the resurrection right now. That's why much of our service today is still very much focused there. But I also wanted to continue today considering how Jesus is king over our ongoing earthly crisis today. There is undoubtedly a connection between this and Easter Sunday, as I hope you'll see. Now that said, I'm not going to start by taking you to the usual biblical passages for today. I'm going to take us somewhere very unusual, to the middle of the Old Testament and the book of 2 Kings. You can turn there with me now in a Bible to 2 Kings chapter 6. I hope you have a Bible at home. If not, you can easily access this online or using a Bible app. 2 Kings 6 and 7 contains some of my favorite stories in Scripture. And though it's not a usual Easter passage, I hope it will give you a fresh glimpse of God's power today. We are going to find God's people here in a major, major crisis. They are in severe, life-threatening trouble. These are the days of Elisha the prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. But the story begins elsewhere, in Syria, or Aram, your Bible might say, and with their king, Ben-Hadad. Let's begin reading in verse 8 of chapter 6. It says this, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. 
So that's Ben-Hadad saying that. But the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, that's a king named Jehoram, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So, the king of Syria is making top secret strategic moves against Israel, but nothing is top secret to God. He sees and hears everything, and God kept warning Elisha, who had warned the king of Israel where not to go, and the intel that Elisha was delivering to them kept saving their necks. Now, obviously this was ages before the days of wiretapping, bugging rooms, Google Home, or Alexa. So... This spooked Ben-Hadad, who assumed that there must be a spy or a mole in his ranks. It says in verse 11, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Like, there's no more secret place than one's bedroom. Didn't matter. So, the king decided to fix the problem by capturing Elisha, Israel's ace up their sleeve. It says, and he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So he sent horses, he sent chariots, he sent soldiers. Overkill? Perhaps. But they, it might have taken, or they might have had to take on the whole city in order to capture Elisha. I think at this point, though, we can already start getting a sense of the major point behind this story. It's only going to get stronger from here. But I'll give it to you now so you can be watching for it. And that's that our king, our king has power beyond our sight and comprehension. Amen. Our king has power beyond our sight and comprehension. The power here did not lie in the king of Israel or the king of Syria. It belonged to the king of heaven. And if supernaturally delivering messages, secret messages, isn't impressive enough, look what comes next in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha's servant's going out for a morning stroll, but gets a, a shocking surprise. This, this huge army had the city they were staying in completely surrounded. And his reaction, in, in not so many words, was, We're all going to die! But Elisha didn't panic and told his servant not to be afraid either. Why not? Well, it says in verse 16, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I think I'd have been like, uh, what are you talking about? Us and what army? Maybe there's a few guys in Dothan that could fight, but not like this. Have you ever felt a bit like the guy in this story, like feeling the odds are, are stacked against you? 
feeling like something or, or someone is out to get you, maybe a virus, feeling helpless in the face of huge trouble and not knowing what to do. Maybe you even thought or said those very words like, what shall we do? And someone tells you to not be afraid and you go, are you kidding me? Like, are you out of your mind? Like, we don't know what God is doing. We don't know what's going to happen. The danger is real. Like, it's only natural to fear. Problem was, Elisha's servant was only seeing part of the picture of reality. Much like us. God allowed Elisha to see the whole picture. In verse 17, it says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I love that. In reality, the army surrounding them was unknowingly surrounded themselves. And not just by an army of men equal in strength or numbers. This was an army of angels in horses and chariots of fire. And the mountain was full of them. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, this made sense. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God's army was more numerous. God's power was far greater. Both the Syrian king and Elisha's servant only saw natural explanations to their problems. They weren't considering that there could be something supernatural going on. And this is a very common belief or assumption today as well. Many people, maybe even including you, believe that everything in the world has a natural cause and explanation. And in a naturalistic mindset, the possibility of anything supernatural is dismissed out of hand. You presuppose or assume that the supernatural cannot exist. If, if I can, I'd like to lovingly challenge you today to consider, to seriously consider if you might be wrong here. I'd urge you to, to not turn a blind eye to the thousands, if not millions of people who would attest to having seen or experienced miracles or supernatural activity throughout history. I counsel you to, to realize that if everything can be explained naturally, this would totally undermine the fields of philosophy, and ethics, literature, religion, art, music, and more. I encourage you to, to give what the Bible says a fair hearing, to look at Jesus, his miracles, and especially his rising from the dead. And I'd ask you to think through why you really believe what you believe. The brilliant philosopher Alvin Plantinga 
explains how faulty these presuppositions, the naturalistic presuppositions we have are, by drawing this picture. He says, to imagine a, a drunk man who lost his car keys, who goes out to, to the road to look for his keys where the street light is shining. And he says that he's looking for his keys there because the light is better there. And if you suggest to perhaps, well, maybe you need to look in the dark for your keys as well, he replies, no, it would be hard to find them in the dark, so they must be under the light. That's what we do when we say it's difficult to believe in supernatural causes. So all causes must therefore take place under the better lighting of natural science. We as Christians believe that God exists. That angels, good and bad, exist. Heaven and hell exist. Now, it's my, not my job to convince you beyond a shadow of, of a doubt today that these are real, though I do believe there's compelling evidence all around us. But it still takes faith to believe. So I pray, I pray that you would reach the place of believing, of putting your faith in this. And if you already do believe, I wonder how many supernatural things happen to us all the time and we rush to give them a natural explanation anyway. Like there is much more to this world than meets the eyes. I can't tell you what, invis what is invisible to us right now in the middle of a global crisis. But I can guarantee you that our king is working in ways beyond our five senses. And I can guarantee you that he has power stronger than any stupid coronavirus. Look how this story in 2 Kings continues. It's, it's rather humorous. The Syrian army didn't know what they got themselves into. Look at verse 18. It says, And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. So whether this was physical or mental blindness, they didn't recognize Elisha or where they were. So while God opened the eyes of the servant he, to true reality, he closed the eyes of the Syrian army. How is that for power? In, in one second, he crippled an enormous army, enabling Elisha to do this. And Elisha said to them, to the army, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, that's Israel's capital city at this time, and around a 20-kilometer walk to the south. And they went willingly. Keep reading. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel, who was there, saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. 
So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Elisha essentially led the entire army to Israel's king as prisoners of war. So Syria sent out a huge army to capture one man. Instead, God used that one man to capture a huge army. <laughs> now question for you. Were these powerful miracles done by Elisha? How about the heavenly army of angels? No. That's interesting, isn't it? Like, Elisha never worked any of these miracles himself. He asked God to do them. And as far as we know, the chariots of fire just stood around looking fierce. I mean, why weren't they used? Or if they were used, then why doesn't it tell us they were? I think God wanted to be crystal clear. It wasn't prophets or angels who saved Israel. God did. Like, the power didn't reside in some special man or in fiery beings. It resided in him. Every miracle recorded in this passage came from God. He told Elisha what Syria was planning. He opened the servant's eyes and blinded the army's eyes. And then he reopened them. He has that kind of power. And he can save his people however he wants to save them. God's power is greater than any power we can fathom. It's stronger than all human power. It's stronger than the devil or any angels. It's stronger than our sin or our wickedness. Like the cross proved that. And as we celebrate today, it's stronger than death. Our king has power beyond our sight and comprehension. I think we also see something else from this particular miraculous intervention. I'm not going to spend long here, but I think it's important to note that in, our, in his power, our king responds to prayer. In his power, our king graciously responds to his people's prayers. Did you see this? Like Elisha prayed three times over the course of five verses, and God answered each time. Verse 18 even specifies that God worked, quote, in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. If the major point of this story was to show off God's power, then clearly it's also telling us something of the way that God's power is exerted on earth. That God loves to work powerfully through prayer. Now lately, I've, I've been telling you often, to pray during this season, and we've been trying to pray frequently as a church, but I haven't necessarily focused on why this is so important and why this is so powerful. It's not because prayer is magical or because prayer psychologically calms us down. Prayer is so vital because prayer is our lifeline of connection to God's throne. Like we get to come before God himself, and we can only do that through prayer. That's how we approach him. And prayer is so powerful, not because we pray all the right things in all the right ways. Prayer is so powerful because God is so powerful, period. So... Am I saying that if we pray, the Lord will always answer our prayers? 
not always answer with a yes. He'll always respond, though. If he hears pagan kings in their bedrooms, <laughs> he will always hear his people on their knees. And then he will answer our prayers according to his will, in his time, and in the way we would have chosen ourselves if we knew everything he did. Isn't that going to be a marvelous day when we're with the Lord and he reveals to us what he was doing all along and we have moment after moment of awestruck realization. Oh, wow! That's why you answer that prayer that way. So pray, pray, pray. Not because it gives us power, but because it brings us to the king of power. Whatever distress or anxiety you have today, you can take it to him. He can handle it. Mm -hmm. And then may we trust him to respond in the best way possible. This is where the theology of heaven meets the streets of earth. Like, our king has power beyond our sight and comprehension. So what? So pray to him and trust. I think that is true all the time, every day. But what about specifically when we're in crisis? When we find ourselves in trouble? I think this is what our story today clearly illustrates for us. He has infinite power and he responds to prayer. That's his response What's our response? So in our trouble, we can courageously rely on his power. In our trouble, we can courageously rely on God's power. I say courageously because of Elisha's admonishment to not be afraid in verse 16. Like, if we could actually see a visible manifestation of God's power, we'd have no fear. But it's true even when we can't see it. Like if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's see how this story continues in 2 Kings. Really, verse 24 could begin a new passage, a part two, if you will. And it starts out with Israel in far more dire straits than before. Look at verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. So, in verse 23, it said that Syria gave up on making raids into Israel, but this was an outright siege. And they put Samaria, Israel's capital city, under this siege. And instead of bringing a, a great army like before, it says Ben-Hadad brought his entire army <laughs> After Syria surrounded the city and, and wouldn't let anyone in or out, the siege became brutal. And if you think you're isolated or cut off from the world or suffering now, a pandemic quarantine has nothing on a siege-induced famine in the ancient world. Verse 25 describes how when the siege and famine got bad, people were so desperate to eat that it drove food prices up to ridiculous levels. Things usually considered unclean or unthinkably un inedible cost a fortune. And then look at verse 26. 
It says, Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Like the, the common places where you produce food. Now notice the people were so desperate for help, but the king felt just as helpless as the people. And they felt that God was not helping them. It seemed like he'd abandoned them. But as this conversation went on, the king learned that the people were even resorting to the, to the lowest of lows of depravity. They were resorting to cannibalism, even of their own family. And he got so distraught that he tore his clothes and he declared in verse 31, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Wait. Why do you want to kill Elisha? Wasn't Elisha like a valuable asset to him? Well, maybe he blamed Elisha for serious hostility. Like, you know, last time they came around, you humiliated them. And now look. But more likely, he blamed God for not helping them. And he decided to take out his anger on Elisha, who was God's prophet, his current representative to them. So, for the second straight passage, Elisha was targeted by a king. First by a foreign ruler, and now by his own nation's ruler. Good thing Elisha's true king was more powerful than both of them. It says in verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So yes, he did blame God for their trouble, and he felt that they couldn't wait any longer for God to deliver. When we go through troubling times, we may sometimes think likewise, that this trouble is from the Lord. Or we wonder, how in the world could God be working through times like these? But while God is ultimately sovereign, as we saw last week, all the suffering in our world can be traced back to evil choices that humans make. It's only since sin has entered into our world that we have faced crisis after horrific crisis. And every one of us has that evil gene inside of us, inside our hearts, that causes us to rebel against God. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to get COVID-19 because of your sin. Not at all. But I am saying that we face disease and death because of sin in general. And I would add that you do deserve to face death because of your personal sin against God. The situation in, in 2 Kings is no different. Whether from direct judgment or indirect consequence, this happened because of sin. And the idea that that God wasn't working in all of this was very wrong. 
continue in chapter 7. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In English, this means the food shortage was going to suddenly end. Large portions of normal food would become affordable again overnight, which means that Elisha was prophesying that the Syrian siege would be lifted within 24 hours. Sadly, the response from the king's messenger was one of disbelief. It says in verse 2, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned, that's the messenger, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, or should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Like, not even God could save us now. But his doubt would cost him dearly. And Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. This man exemplifies someone not relying on God's power in times of trouble. And thinking about the opposite of that shows us one way we should rely on his power. And that's by believing his word. Believing his word. Think about it. This captain had likely been with the king when Elisha, as one man, had previously marched a big Syrian army right into Samaria as prisoners of war. He had seen God's power at work before. How could he doubt now? A few verses down, after God does, of course, save the day, we see the king also doubting. Even after salvation had been prophesied, and the miracle had actually happened. He assumed that they were being tricked. It's ridiculous. Like, I find their lack of faith disturbing. And yet, I also find my lack of faith disturbing. Don't you often feel the same? I've seen God's power at work before. I've heard all the stories, and I believe them. I think there's remarkable evidence that says that Jesus not only died, but that he actually bodily rose again from the dead in power. I've experienced him changing my life, and I've seen him change so many other hearts. I've got no excuses, and yet sometimes I doubt. We really ought to believe him when he says our sins are forgiven, covered by Jesus' blood. We really ought to believe him when he says he will never leave us nor forsake us. We really ought to believe him when he says he's coming back again. Let me add here, just believing in the supernatural isn't enough. Like the, the devil goes that far. We have to believe in a Savior. Only Jesus has the power to save you and to give you life that outlasts death. As we'll see momentarily, everything happened in this passage just as God said it would. 
it makes a point to say that it all happened according to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. And some very unlikely characters got to discover God's deliverance first. Look at verse 3. It says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So, now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. <laughs> like They had three options. Die a certain death right here. Die a certain death in there. Or probably die a likely death out there. Going to the only place there was food. <laughs> they had nothing to lose by trying option three. So they took the risk. But they were in for a surprise. God chose option four, which they never imagined existed. And I believe we can see a key way to rely on God's power here. Not in what the lepers sought to do, that was just self-preservation. But in what the lepers actually saw God do. We can rely on God's power in troubling times, not just by believing his word, but by seeing his work. By seeing his work. Look at what the lepers saw. Verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. <laughs> like, what? They're looking around at a, a deathly silent camp. What happened? God happened. Verse 6. Behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. They knew they, they never stand a chance against the united forces of three nations. The Hittites from the north, the Egyptians from the south, plus Israel. So they took off. There really was no army, but God didn't need one. And this God-induced panic was so strong that they abandoned everything. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Now, what did Israel do to save themselves? Nothing. They simply had to wait and watch God work in a miraculous way. Now, I cannot promise you that God will miraculously save us from earthly crises today. He may. And for those that love him, he will either save us from today's pandemic or he will take us home to be with him. Either way, he'll see us through it. But remember that we've already seen his work on our behalf in what Jesus has done. 
We've seen it. And seeing that work, focusing on it, can help us face the troubles of today. It reminds us of both His power and His love. So see His work. And finally, we can express our reliance on His power today. Final point. By spreading the good news. By spreading the good news. As lepers enjoyed the plunder of the Syrian army, they were forgetting something. But thankfully they didn't forget for long. And verse 9 says, we'll read this longer passage here. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, When they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare the, the, like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. To summarize how the last paragraph goes, uh, the king's doubting messenger from earlier ends up getting trampled in the mad rush to plunder the camp, just as God said. But I want to focus back on verses 8 and 9. Because I think the imagery is powerful. I think Christians often end up living like the lepers in verse, nine, verse 8 and not the lepers of verse 9. God has powerfully delivered us from, from sin, from the devil, from eternal death. And he's graciously blessed us above and beyond mere deliverance. Now we revel in these blessings as we should. Sometimes we can forget the city behind us that's starving to death. Ignoring their desperate need of the same grace that God has lavished on us. In the words of the lepers, This is a day of good news. We must not remain silent. Okay. It's about time. Let's turn over to Matthew 28, where the news is even greater. Like the leper story, the gist of it is, because of God's deliverance, you don't have to die. See, our king left his throne and came down to earth and lived a human life about 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ. 
And while he was here, he demonstrated God's power and through all kinds of miracles. But even though he had all God's power at his fingertips, he held back his power. And he allowed us to, to try and arrest and try and torture and execute him on a cross. Wait, that's not a show of strength. That's more like a show of weakness. Yeah, you, you think so. But the apparent weakness of a suffering Savior ended up demonstrating the greatest power to ever grace this world. As three days later, he burst out from the grave, conquering over the power of sin and death once and for all. Look at it with me. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, this, Jesus is dead at this point. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This was a much greater miracle than any of those in 2 Kings, and, and those were amazing. A prophet then predicted God's salvation for Israel in advance. But we come to Jesus, and he predicted his own death and resurrection. Tear down this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And his word was fulfilled. The angel said, he is risen as he said. Believe his word! As he said, the greatest trouble we will ever face in life is death. It's our final enemy. But Jesus defeated it. We no longer need to fear it. See his work. And when despairing people discovered God's deliverance, they didn't find an empty camp this time. They found an empty tomb. And then... Like the, the Syrian army had fled, the guards fled, and then the, the people who discovered it were challenged to go and tell. I love what some people were saying online this week, that church buildings may be empty this Easter, but so is the grave. We've got to focus on the right emptiness right now. Death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is gone. Empty. Like this is a day of good news. So go spread it.
And yet, here is sober warning as well. Even after the miracle here, not everyone accepted it. If you look down to verse 16 in Matthew 28, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted him. Some doubted In other places we see some of his disciples going, No, it's got to be a trick. I won't believe it unless I see it. Remember, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't need to see an actual empty tomb to have it change your life. So I challenge you today to believe, to put your fears aside, to put your pride aside, and to admit that you need Jesus in your life. You need forgiveness for your sin. You need grace for today. And you need life beyond death. Please, reach out to us online, to a friend who can help you with this right now. The gospel, Jesus dying and rising again, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And here's what I think is the most mind-blowing thing for those of us who believe. Ephesians 1, which we read earlier, says that the same immeasurably great power that God the Father used to raise Jesus from the dead is now at work inside of us. Romans 8.11 says similar. says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I'm not saying that, that you're now supernaturally powerful, like you're some kind of superhuman now. But I am saying that the God who is supernaturally powerful, and if the God who is lives in you, He's empowering you to live for Him, speaking for Him, praying to Him, and relying on Him in faith. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Is His new life, His resurrection life, being manifested in you today? I hope so. Because His resurrection changes everything about enduring the earthly crises of today. As Dane Ortland encourages us, from heaven's shore... We will see how eternally safe we were all along, even amid the global upheaval and anxieties that loom so large as we walk through them. The dangers out there are real, the cautions are wise, our bodies are mortal, vulnerable, but our souls, for those united to a resurrected Christ, are beyond the reach of all eternal danger. 
how unharmable we are, we who are in Christ. Be at peace. All is assured. Mm. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for all the, the hearts and minds who have heard this message from your word. I pray that you would bring conviction of sin and repentance of sin. That you would bring salvation to those who need it. That you would pour out your mercy and your grace on us today in your power. We who are saved, thank you and we praise you that you have sent your spirit to indwell us and empower us to now follow in your footsteps. So we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name.